Okay, Genesis chapter 9, please. We're in just chapter 9. I was encouraged to hear Mike and Deb say, hey, listen, we listen to you guys all the time. Even when we're not here, we follow along. And I thought, man, that's an encouragement. I wonder how many of us who actually are here are doing that. You know, so again, I encourage you, if you miss a Sunday, you know, it's fine. But listen, we want everyone to participate in us in this series. And so if you miss a Sunday, you know, you can always go online and listen to it so that you kind of know what's going on here. Um, and so uh, here we are in chapter 9 uh, today. Uh, we decided to, uh, James did such a good job with the genealogy last time. We're going to give him another chapter of genealogy next week. And so... Uh, be praying for James as he prepares for that. But I've got Genesis chapter 9, and uh, I guess I titled this message today, A New Beginning. A New Beginning. We just read about world, you know, widespread of sin and the universal flood. Uh, and, of course, Noah and his family are spared. And so, if you bear with me, let's just read uh, together the end of chapter 8. We're going to start in chapter 8, actually, verse 20, and we'll read chapter 9 here. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and, and took it and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination or the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. And so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air and on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. And then God spoke to Noah and his sons and with them, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 
And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. And then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The Lord will bless the reading of his word again this morning. Let's just open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for these stories in Genesis. We're so thankful for the foundational truths that are laid out in these stories that not only happened thousands of years ago, but they were written thousands of years ago too. And we're so thankful for how practical uh, they are today um, uh, for us in our everyday lives. And so, uh, Lord God, we pray for understanding. We pray that we might be able to apply some of these things to our lives. Um, I pray that we would just not be uh, moved this morning by your word, but that we would be changed as well. And so we ask these things that you may be glorified. Amen. And so I said, we have this new beginning now, right? Um, God has destroyed all flesh uh, from the earth, except for Noah and his family and some animals, right? And so we have a new beginning here, and it's almost as if um, we have some new set of rules, a new set of rules or rules of the game, I'd like to say, rules of the game. And the first one there is in verse 7, is that is this, one, they were to populate the earth now. They were to populate the earth. Noah and his family are told to conceive children and fill the earth just as he had told Adam. Remember, he gave the exact same command to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue and fill the earth, right? He gives the same instructions to Noah as well. And so I think it's amazing, right, that God, even though every intent of man, man's heart, is evil from his youth, God says, hey, listen, his desire was that there be an increase in human life. There would be an increase. Right? Also, we need to understand that human reproduction, right, helps to accomplish God's purpose in redemption. Right? We learned about that in Genesis chapter 3, that it's going to be her seed that crushes the serpent's head. Right? Well, in order for that to happen, you need to be able to reproduce. Right? And so human reproduction helps to accomplish God's purpose in redemption. But also, I think it's important for us to understand that, you know, for those of us in our isolation, right, it's easy for us to think that, hey, you know what, I'm pretty good, and that I don't need God. But as the world fills up, we can really no longer move away from those that irritate us, <laughs> right? We are forced to face our own sinfulness. And then James alluded to that, I think, in the, the last time he spoke, is that, right, as this world gets larger and larger, more and more people fill it, right, it's just more and more sin, <laughs> more and more sinfulness, right? 
And so God's desire was that they were to populate the earth. Yes, it uh, helped to accomplish God's purpose in reproduction, but it also just, we see it everywhere. It's evident as, as we continue to populate this earth, it just gets worse and worse. But this was some of the rules of the game now, that they were to populate the earth. The second thing is that they're to preside over the animals okay, through fear. Okay, they are to preside over the animal world through fear. We see that in verse 2. Okay, Noah, like Adam, was to have dominion over the animals. But a little different this time. Now, it was going to be through fear and terror. Okay, now, fear and terror are to characterize beasts in relation to men. Okay, and so that man could achieve a measure of control over them. Okay? For the most part, right, people that have dogs, right, they, their dogs obey them because they fear them to an extent. Okay? They're able to control them. All right? And so that's the idea here that God says, okay, I'm going to give you dominion over the animal world, Noah, but it's going to be through fear and terror. Right? And so they were to preside over the animal world. And This provision, I think, was made to teach man that he is no longer Lord of creation as he was originally created to be, as was with Adam, okay? Um, In other words, Adam had the the animal worlds, right, in loving, obedient subjection to him. Why? Uh, Why is it now no longer that way? Well, because man is sinful, (laughs) right? That was before Adam was sinned. Uh, had brought sin into the world, right? But now, Adam and Noah and the descendants of man now are sinful, and the image of God in him has been marred by sin. And so God tells them to preside over the animal world, but it's going to be through fear and terror uh, so that man could achieve some measure of control over them. Not only that, were they to populate the earth and to preside over the animal world, but they were to, um, there was provision to sustain life, a provision to sustain life. God had given a vegetable diet for man in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30. But now it's very interesting, and I'm very thankful for this verse, that God allows now a meat diet, okay, to be added to the earlier menu. And uh, why that is, I don't know. Perhaps, you know, the flood washed away much of the virtue of the earth, so that it rendered its fruits less pleasing or maybe less nourishing. And so God now allowed man to eat flesh, which perhaps man himself never thought of until now. And we know that there are laws that are going to come along the way, eventually where it prohibits certain meats that they are to uh, eat. But at this point right now, Noah said, hey, listen, you can provide for yourself by eating of living things, including the animals. And so perhaps this was designed by God to teach man that his life is sustained by the dying of another creature. I don't know. But man, right, has no life's force of his own. Right? Our life force is always borrowed. And so, we as humans, we are very dependent creatures. We cannot live without the sun. We cannot live without eating of what's in this planet or drinking the water. We can't do it. Okay? We have to borrow from everything in this planet and this solar system in order for us to survive. 
And so therefore, man must depend upon God and realize that it is through the death of Christ that man can have eternal life. I don't know. But in any case, these are one of the rules now, is that in order to provide, to sustain life, they can now not just eat of the ground, but they can eat animals as well, eat meat. And then also, there was a prohibition, right, of certain flesh for food. Although they can now have a meat diet, man is not to eat flesh that has not been drained of its blood. All right, so one meaning of this may be, right, that they were not allowed to cut off, tear away, or take any part of any creature for their food while it was still alive. Okay, that is kind of gross, all right? Um, And pretty much today I would agree with that, right? You don't want to go ahead and just, you know, eat a chicken while it's still alive. It's kind of, it's kind of disgusting. Uh, in other words, this could mean, hey, listen, make sure you kill it first. Make sure you kill it, okay? Um, but another meaning could be to prohibit the eating of blood in any way, okay? And so, again, for a lot of people that, that hunt and things like that, that one of the things that uh, as a practice is we drain the blood. One of the reasons we do that is because it tenderizes the meat, um, but also that the, uh, they were used to just draining the blood. Sometimes when people fish, too, they go fishing, they drain the blood of the fish as well. And so perhaps blood was forbidden as a token to mankind in all ages that they would have had no right to take the life of any animal for food if God had not given them that right to begin with. Maybe to, to impress this on their minds, they would be required to spill that blood out on the ground. Okay, Perhaps it was in honor of the blood atonement. Now remember in Leviticus, right? Uh, we read that the life is in the blood. right? It's in the blood. And so the life of the sacrifice right, was accepted for the life of the sinner. And blood always made atonement for the soul. Therefore, it must not be looked upon as a common theme. And so because all these things, uh, yet yeah, mankind may not have understood that point, but that we understand now in hindsight, looking at the Bible, perhaps God made this little um, prohibition here in order for them to understand that, listen, when it comes to blood, that is not a small thing, okay? But that in pouring out that blood or draining out that blood, the man is recognizing Right, how important blood is, right? That the blood is the life of something, and that the life of a sacrifice was accepted for the life of a sinner. But either way, we see here that there's a new diet. They can have a meat diet, but they are prohibited to eat of the blood. And it was necessary now, right, to have a covenant with obligations, right, for mankind and a promise from God. Human law now was necessary for the stability of life, and that wickedness should not go unchecked as it had before. And so the human government was brought in by some of these new rules of the game. And one of them, in particular, was this. Punishment for taking a man's life. Since life is sacred, as represented by the blood, in the body, right? God will require the life of an animal or a man that takes 
a man's life. Now again, we don't see this until Exodus chapter 21, but that's one of the laws that God establishes is that if you've got an ox and that ox, you know, gores someone and kills him, God says, kill the ox. Okay? Not only that, okay, um, if man premeditated kills someone, murders someone, God is saying the punishment is to take that man's life. And so man, now remember, he's allowed to kill beasts for food, right? Man might misuse this principle. Okay? And so he may become indifferent to the shedding of blood and regard lightly death. Okay? Or life for that matter. Even the life of a man. Okay? And so God raises a warning right, ahead of time in view of the wide range of possibilities in which sinful man could commit abuses to this new rule. Okay? This command, of course, is the basis for capital punishment. Before the flood, in the story of Cain, which we looked at, God took the punishment of murder into his own hands. But now... He's committed this judgment to men. To masters of families at first and to afterward the heads of countries. And so we know that in Romans chapter 13, right, government acts as an instrument of God. And he has and has the right to take another person's life. It is God who takes human life when it is done through proper governmental channels and therefore is not murder. This command of a life for a life, of course, deals with premeditated murder, right? It wouldn't include things like uh, killing in defense, right? Or um, military killing or things like that, right? God was just establishing now that where before, in the example of Cain, God took matters into his own hands. He now is giving that matter over to men. And we see this human government that is established, okay, um, for such an act as this. And then we see here uh, in verses 8 through 17 a pact with Noah. Okay? We see the covenant with Noah. And again, all these things that we mentioned already is part of this covenant. Okay? Remember in the end of chapter 8, that's why we read that, God promises them. Right? He promises them to make this covenant with them. And then all these things are kind of rules, new rules of the game now regarding this new promise. And so first of all, what is the meaning of a covenant? This is the first time we hear of a covenant in the Bible. Okay? A biblical covenant is where God unconditionally makes a pact with men. God does not reach agreements with sinful men through a bargaining process. Man is no threat to the government of God. God is in control of history and has set down rules through covenants for men to live by. And of course, as I said, this is the first biblical covenant in the Bible. What was the source of this covenant? Well, the source was God alone. Look at the, in several of the verses you'll see there. Uh, God says, I establish my covenant over and over again in these verses. There is no covenant unless God makes it and keeps it. Okay? He is the source of the covenant. What is the scope of the covenant? This covenant was made with all men and animals. So all living things was the scope of this covenant. What was the purpose of the covenant? God made this covenant to guarantee to all men 
that the world will never be destroyed by water again. In fact, God judged sin, right, by the worldwide flood, okay? But now God makes a covenant of peace, a covenant of peace. What's the duration of the covenant? It says there in verse, uh, what is it, verse, I think, 16, right? This is an everlasting covenant, okay? And also it says in verse 12, for perpetual generations. It's an everlasting covenant, the duration of it. There's no expiration date on this covenant. What was the sign of the covenant? Well, God gave the rainbow, right, as a sign of the Noetic covenant, right? And it is a guarantee to fulfill all that God has promised in this covenant. The rainbow appears. You ever notice when the rainbow appears? Yeah, right. Yeah, you got to have rain, right? Or, or if just finished rain or there's rain, there's water in the cloud, you got to have it, right, in order for that refraction of light, right? But I always think it's interesting that the rainbow appears when there's rain, okay? When we would have more reason to fear that the earth would be flooded again, right? Picture all those after the flooding of the earth, Noah and his family, every time they saw rain clouds, every time it started to rain, they must have been terrified, right? And God would say, listen, even when you see what might be the, uh, most fearful that I would do again, I wanna, I'm going to put something in the sky that says I will never do that again. Never, okay? And so, again, um, when we would have more reason to fear, right, that the earth would flood again, God shows uh, this seal of promise that it won't happen. Isn't that true, too, of God's, all of God's promises? Right? I think it's important for us to know the promises of God so that when those moments in our life where we fear, right, those moments of our life where we, you know, we fear that um, God, you know, can't, you know, come through here or uh, God won't come through here, right? We can seize those promises of God and say, no, no, God, God promised this. God promised never to leave me or forsake me. God promised me to take me home to be with him forever. Okay? It's so important for us to claim the promises of God. Just like the people then would see that sign in the sky and be able to claim, no, you know what? Even though it's raining really, really hard right now, God promised he would never destroy the earth again by water. And so that was the sign that God gave. And what was the design of the covenant? The first design of the covenant, I think, was to give blessing to all mankind, right? God would never destroy the earth by water again. It was a sign of God's promise. However, there may be a second design to the covenant, too, that is to drive home to you and I and to men and women everywhere that we are sinful and that we are in need of God's grace and mercy. Remember, we read in chapter 8 again that it says the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's still true today. Nothing has changed regarding that. This is a fundamental truth that God is forever seeking to impress upon men and women. I was teasing Mrs. McLaughlin on on Wednesday night. I shouldn't share this because I'll get in trouble with all of you, but... uh, we, we did the dinner for everybody, and she came up, and she goes, you're doing good. I said, Ms. McLaughlin, the Bible says that no one does good. You know, and here you are teaching Bible study out of our chapel, and you're, you know, saying things like this, but we knew what she meant. 
right? But the Bible says no one, no one does. There's no one who seeks after God. No one who's righteous, right? Man's intent from the very is that they are evil continuously. That's how we are even today, right? And so I feel like the design of this covenant too is to drive that home to us that we are sinful, okay? And that until man understands that he is basically sinful, he has no need for a savior. I, sh- I shared this morning, this, it's amazing to me, right, that in chapter 6, the same wor- verbiage is used there, right? The same language, and yet judgment ensues. God pours His wrath out on this earth and destroys everyone. And then here in chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, He says the same thing again, and yet there is no judgment. But there's a sacrifice, right? There's a sacrifice. And so I think that's a beautiful picture for us again, too. As we look at that rainbow in the sky, we're reminded that we are sinful, but that God has made a covenant of peace. That God has established a covenant with us. And so imagine, again, just even today, right? If the tides, I don't know if you guys know how the tides work, but, you know, the tides flow, you know, for half the day, six hours, or a fourth of the day, I should say, right? But imagine if the tides could flow for a few days instead of just, you know, twice every day for six hours or so would be devastating right so would the clouds if such showers as we have sometimes seen were allowed to continue longer and we've seen some of the devastation right of rain for days flooding but imagine if god allowed that to happen even longer right but god by flowing seas and sweeping rains shows what he could do in wrath right and yet by preserving the earth from being destroyed by both He shows what He can do in mercy. Through the Noetic Covenant, God orders life in such a way that man cannot escape exposure to this fundamental revelation that he is basically sinful. That's the purpose of the Noetic Covenant. We didn't do anything for God to show us peace and mercy. Nothing. Man was still the same. God just did that for us to hopefully recognize that we are sinful and in need of a Savior. Every provision of this covenant made with Noah and the whole human race is designed to impress upon man the helplessness of his evil condition and thus drive him to the love and grace of God. You know, Romans chapter 1, it says that man is without excuse. And it says what? It says creation. Right? Tells him that he's without excuse. I wonder if the rainbow is one of those things it's referring to. That those who will stand before the judgment, uh, want the great white throne of judgment one day, God will say, you saw my rainbow. You knew. You knew that you were sinful. Right? And that you needed a Savior, and yet you rejected Him. But it says that man will be without excuse. And so the rainbow in this noetic covenant uh, stands for this. And then we see in verses 18 and 19, we see um, Noah's three sons, right? Um, and it's kind of neat that, now again, this is a new beginning. So we have now the world, the human race coming in from these three families. Um, the descendants of Shem are essentially the Semitic people, the Jews, the, the Arabs. The descendants of Ham are the southern nations, Middle East, Egypt, South Arabia, parts of Africa, etc. And then the descendants of Japheth, 
are the Indo-Europeans. And so from these three families, the whole earth was populated. And I'm not going to say any more on that because we'll give James some to talk about next week there. Okay? But again, this is how the whole earth is populated, from these three families, three sons of Noah. And then we get into two sins here. Right? Two sins. First, we see the sin of Noah. Okay? In verses 20 and 21. Um, we don't know when this incident took place after the flood, but there had to be ample time for Noah to grow a vineyard that produced grapes. Now, someone tells me it takes about three to five years for that to happen. Okay? Um, but we're not sure when this takes place, but it's sometime after the flood. Noah produces wine he's able to produce a vineyard produce grapes make wine and the bible tells us that he gets drunk right he gets drunk now drunkenness is always called sin in scripture always noah and this is so interesting to me noah who had found grace in god's eyes in genesis chapter 6 verse 8 who had been found to be the only upright one in his age, which is Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, guess what? Is a sinner. <laughs> he fell into sin. Okay? Again, just reiterating everything that we just talked about. Okay? This shows us that even the best of God's saints are capable of sin if they're not walking close to the Lord. Okay? It's sad, but unfortunately, some of us can probably recall someone in our lives that we looked up to and then we heard of a sin that they fell into and we were so devastated, so shocked. Noah here gets drunk. And it says that he was uncovered within his tent. Noah's drunkenness led to a lack of concern about modesty. Because you know what? Alcohol always lowers one's resistance to right and wrong. Noah, I'm again speculating here, but Noah probably felt warm because of the effect of the wine, took his clothes off, and passed out. Now, as our world's um morals and so we see here that noah right is passed out in his tent and then we come to this sin of ham his son now the bible says that ham seeing or he saw the nakedness of his father um and this is the reason for the curse on canaan his son Now, many of you that have read this before, maybe some of you have never read this before, there are a lot of people that feel, hey, man, this punishment is a bit harsh. I mean, come on, man. You stumble in in your dad's tent, you see him naked, and now you curse his son? Like, that sounds kind of harsh, man. You know, there's got to be something else here. And so some people, and and again, um, a, a lot of people have this view, is that in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, and in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 20, there's a term that says, Uh, uncover his father's nakedness to mean that a son has committed adultery with his father's wife. Okay? And so, when you think of how harsh God's judgment is on Canaan, right, I think this would be, you know, it's it's easy to say, okay, this would be a more plausible crime, right, to fit the story of Noah. Right? 
Why is Noah so harsh? Why does he pronounce such judgment on Canaan? Okay, that must have been it. Ham slept with Noah's wife. Well, regarding um, the concerns over Canaan's curse, that proposed interpretation, for me, doesn't quite fit the text given in Genesis chapter 9. First, in Genesis chapter 9, it says that he saw, right, uh, the nakedness of his father. The word saw there is uh, a Hebrew word, uh, ra. Okay, it just means um, the phrase is related with the phrase uncovered. Whereas in Leviticus, um, it says that he uncovered the nakedness of his father. It's a completely different word. It's a word gala. Okay, and so for me in Genesis chapter 9, it says he saw the nakedness of his father. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it says he uncovered the nakedness of his father, which actually does mean to have an affair with your father's wife okay also um and so of course these two words can sound similar when translated into english but they are in fact very different thoughts in hebrew okay to see nakedness and to uncover nakedness are not at all the same action first involves looking at an unclothed body while the latter means to engage in sex Secondly, even if we assume, let's just say that these two words are the same, okay? The action described in Genesis chapter 9 doesn't allow for this conclusion. Notice, right, that after Ham sees his father's nakedness and he tells his brothers, what do they do? They actually go cover their dad up, okay? Which, if again, if it meant that Ham had done something inappropriate, I don't see how that makes sense. Why are you going to cover your dad up then, okay? And then third, just the fact that these brothers were acting to conceal or hide nakedness confirms to me that the earlier mention of seeing Noah naked is talking about an unclothed body, not a description of a sexual act. Either way, either way, what Ham did was wrong, <laughs> okay? Because we have the judgment pronounced on his son from Noah. Okay, but I lent 10 more to look at the fact that, yes, Noah is naked and Ham looks upon him. So then why does God curse Canaan? Okay, why does he curse? If it's not a sexual act, why does he curse Canaan? Well, perhaps, okay, Canaan may have been involved in this sexual perversion with Ham, even though it's not recorded. Okay, could have been that, you know, uh, you know, Canaan saw his grandfather, went and told his dad, Ham, and then Ham went and told his brothers. I don't know, okay? Um, But second, it could have been that the depraved ways of Ham were also obvious traits in his son, Canaan, okay? Noah knew that Ham's tolerance for perversion, his delight in it, was also in seed form in Canaan. You guys ever hear that phrase, like father, like son? Okay, and so Noah very well could be seeing this type of perversion not only in his son, but he sees it in his grandson already. And that's why he pronounces this judgment. But third, this penalty against Ham's son Canaan was so severe, right? 
To me, it indicates that the actions of his father were that obscene. We don't know what Ham did, but based on Noah's judgment, I don't think it was just this innocent, accidental thing. Right? One of the things that's interesting is that um, you know Ham goes into the tent. Notice when he goes, and tells his brothers, they're what? They're outside. Okay, they knew better. Right? And so, and the last thing, which is extremely important for us to understand is that Noah's words refer to the nation of the Canaanites, right? That would come from Ham through Canaan. Remember, this is the people that God has already judged. Remember, he said that these, his people would come into the land of Canaan and they would destroy the Canaanites. And so it's prophetic in nature too that Noah would judge Canaan rather than Ham, right? The fact that our culture, right, sees little wrong with a son viewing the nakedness of his father with perverse delight simply reflects how perverse our culture has become. There are so many people today that just say, well, Ham, you know, okay, he kind of was giggling, laughing at his dad laying there naked. Come on, that's kind of harsh that, that Noah would curse Canaan for that. But I think it kind of indicates where we're at today. You see, the Hebrews were very conscious of nakedness. This was a serious offense that humiliated Noah and it polluted the family name. And so it warranted God's firm response. You see, before the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived without clothing in a perfectly natural state. But after the fall, nakedness became a source of shame. In fact, at their own nakedness, right, was the first felt consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. It's the first thing they notice, right? Is that they were naked and they were ashamed. And so, of course, since then, since the fall, right, nakedness has been linked with sexuality, privacy, vulnerability. Ham entered that tent, saw his father's nakedness, and went to tell his brothers. He didn't try to cover his dad up, right? He shouldn't have been even in there to begin with. Okay, And they really feel, a lot of scholars believe that the sin may have been more than merely just mocking his father's naked body. Whatever he did, right? Whatever he did by seeing his father's nakedness, as it's translated, right, was wicked enough to invite Noah's wrath when he sobered up. And then, of course, Noah pronounces a strong curse on Canaan. As our world's morals continue to spiral downward, uncovering nakedness in one way or another has become a favorite pastime. Culture has glorified nakedness and worked to numb our natural modesty by parading nakedness before our eyes. Even children's clothing now is sexualized. And media outlets praise nakedness as bold, brave, liberating. We watch actors uncover each other's nakedness publicly on the big screen. The pornography industry has made a fortune by uncovering nakedness in every possible way, mocking biblical moral standards 
saying that they're archaic, too restrictive. You see, we've lost the concept of honor for one's sexuality. Treating the sex drive as just another need to be met, that like we treat hunger and thirst. Uncovering nakedness is no longer a source of shame in a culture that has been trained to expect and applaud it. Ironically, in a world that celebrates the uncovering of nakedness, sexual dysfunctions, abuses, and even infertility are skyrocketing. God created the human body, and listen to this, sexuality is His idea. He therefore knows best how we function. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, he says, You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. You see, God intended the uncovering of nakedness to be done only within His prescribed boundaries of marriage. Christians, right, we can help reclaim the sanctity of marital relations and modesty by refusing to deaden our consciences through sexually graphic TV programs, movies, magazines. We can guard our eyes against pornographic images by installing filters on our internet devices. We can honor our bodies by refusing to uncover our own nakedness in the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we behave. Nakedness is no longer innocent as it was in the garden. And wise people do not uncover it in dishonoring ways. And so, it's important for us to understand okay, that what Ham did was not good. (laughs) It was evil. Whether we can come to agree as to what he actually did, I don't know if it really matters. But it certainly had something to do with nakedness. And again, we're living in a time where we just... We just nonchalantly, right? We've kind of just become uh, desensitized to the whole thing. We laugh about it. We giggle about it. We think it's not a big deal. Uh, But here, as you can see, in Noah's day, it was a big deal to God. It was a huge deal. And so this is why Noah pronounces such a strict, fierce judgment upon Canaan. Now, according to Genesis chapter 10, the Canaanites settled in the area which is now Palestine. These Canaanite tribes were all conquered when Israel entered the land, bringing fulfillment of the curse that we read there in uh, verse 26. Canaan finally became the servant of Shem, as, was, as Noah had said here. And then furthermore, the Phoenicians, who were descendants of Canaan through Sidon, they were ultimately overcome by the Japhetic Cretes, uh, Greeks and the Romans, which fulfilled that as well. And so certainly, um, Canaan became the servant to their brothers. And then the last thing I'll just close with is this. It's pretty cool is that we also see a messianic prophecy here. Okay, As you can see, the three sons and their descendants are each linked with a blessing or a curse. Japheth is blessed in connection with territory. Ham is cursed with enslavement. Shem is is blessed with a connection with God. And so based on this passage, it would make sense that the Messiah would be a descendant of Shem then. 
as opposed to one of Japheth or Ham, given the nature and the content of Shem's blessing. In later verses of Genesis, we begin to see a pattern. God is announcing the lineage of the Messiah through the form of blessings. For example, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, Abraham is told that his descendants will be a blessing to the world. But guess who Abraham is a descendant of? Shem. But we also read in Luke chapter 3, verse 36, when we're reading Jesus Christ's genealogy, guess who's listed? Shem as one of his ancestors. So it's amazing, again, God and his plan, you know, um, this Bible here, again, don't let everybody fool you for a second. Just the fact alone that you have 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, okay? And yet the theme is the same throughout the whole thing. It's amazing. God was about to bring his plan about, okay? Just so he had promised Adam and Eve that he was going to send a Savior. It was going to come through the line of Shem and on through the other descendants from there that God was going to keep his promise. And so let's just pray. Our Father, thanks again for uh, your word. We're thankful for the Noetic covenant. We're so thankful for this covenant of peace that you've given us. We're thankful for extending your mercy to us. That even though we are still sinful, um, we're thankful that you promised never to destroy the earth again, at least not by water. And until that time comes where you destroy this earth again and create a new heaven and new earth, we're thankful for this age of grace in which you give mankind an opportunity to recognize, to admit that they're sinful and that they need a Savior. And so, Lord God, we pray for so many around this world who have yet to trust you as their Savior. We pray that they would do so today and be saved from the wrath to come. Uh, Lord God, we ask all these things uh, in accordance to your will with much thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.